How is it that we find ourselves surrounded by such complexity, such elegance? The genes of you and me, the genes of you and me, are all made of DNA. We're all made of the same chemical DNA. to DNA Today, a genetics podcast and radio show. I'm your host, Kira Deneen. DNA Today informs on what's happening in the genetic world. During my broadcast, I educate you, the public, on genetic and health topics for event coverage, news stories, book movie reviews, and interviews. Guests include genetic counselors, researchers, patient advocates, and professors. My guest today is Sarah McAnulty. She's the founder of Skype a Scientist, matching classrooms with scientists for Q&A sessions. Sarah's also a PhD candidate and scientist at the University of Connecticut, right here on campus, and we're doing this interview in person, which is exciting. She studies squids and their symbiosis with bioluminescent bacteria. So I'm very excited to hear about your research and everything happening right here on campus. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So let's start out with what Skype a Scientist is. It's a very, very cool and kind of um, ingenious program that you're able to really do the science communication. How does it work? So basically classrooms from anywhere in the world can sign up online um, at skypeascientist.com and they can uh, request whatever type of scientist they'd like to talk to in their classrooms. And then scientists also sign up and then we match the scientists in the classroom based on um, the type of scientist requested, the time zone they're in availability. Um, and we can also match scientists based on uh, minority status. So for example, if we have a classroom um, that has a primarily African-American based or uh, Latin American, whatever, we can match that with a scientist of the same uh, underrepresented minority so that the kids in the class can really relate to the scientists that they're talking to. And so these class uh, sessions will last about a half hour to an hour, and kids can ask the scientist whatever they want to know about. Um, usually the scientists will give them some background about what they do, the type of science that they do, um, and they may have a conversation about how they got to where they are or uh, just about their science in general, what it's like to be a scientist, whatever the kids are really interested in. And so how far is this reach? Are we talking Connecticut or? Um, so we're in about 45 countries right now. Wow, um, 45 countries, not even states, countries. Even states, yeah. So we've got at least one scientist in one classroom from all of the 50 states. Um, and then 43 countries on top of that. So we've gotten um, about 5,000 classrooms have already participated, and then we have another 1,000 signed up for the spring so far. Um, and then we have about 2,500 scientists that have participated so far. So we have every type of scientist that you can imagine. We have astronomers, uh, biologists, ecologists, physicists, chemists, the full range of scientists. So how are you able to actually do this, of find all these scientists, but also find all these classrooms? Social media has been super helpful. So we use Facebook primarily to get to the teachers, and then Twitter has been great for getting both scientists and teachers. Um, I've contacted the departments of education in various states that have spread the word to their teachers. Um, but for the scientists, it's mostly been Twitter. Um, there are a lot of scientists on Twitter, so yes. <laughs> it's really easy to spread the word. Hashtag SciCom is really big. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So uh, the scientists have spread word among themselves, and it's been honestly easier to find more scientists than, than classrooms, just because when you're a scientist, you know scientists. Yeah. But, um, and scientists really like to share what they like to do and what they're researching and get that out for the public. Yeah, absolutely. Especially this past year, there's been a lot of energy uh, devoted to science communication, and uh, that's been really great to sort of take advantage of. So it's pretty cool that it's a free program, right? So classrooms can sign up with no cost to the school or the teacher or anything. Yeah, exactly. It's completely volunteer-based, and we've found ways to make it run as cheaply as we can um, so that we can keep it free for classrooms. There's no um, 
preferential treatment for classrooms that have more money. And so talking about science communications, um, how can we more effectively communicate science to the public as scientists ourselves? I think one of the most important things that I've found is just lower your bar for, for uh, how important, how like, let me see how to phrase this best, like, like don't try your, to give them too much information almost. Well, you kind of want to just like not get too in your head about it and don't feel like you have to make this like magnum opus of a attempt. Like you, if just get out there and try. And if you fail, then maybe, you know, five people will have witnessed your, your failure of trying to communicate. But just practicing is really important and just getting out there and giving it a shot. If you want to um, start small, just get an event at a local bar, try to um, communicate that way. Um, but you have a couple a, of those coming up. That's why you gave that up. example. Yeah. 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 Um, but even just try starting online. If you start a Twitter account, you can kind of see what people respond to the best. You can um, kind of play with your wording and see what people uh, react to. And what you get likes on might be a more effective communication tool than uh, the ones that get ignored. Yeah. Um, and analytics so, are really good there. You can even see, you know, how many people you've reached, how many people are engaging with your post, how many shares. So that that's yeah, definitely totally. a really good measure of how your communication is. Yeah. So I think just practicing. I mean, you want to uh, kick, kick the jargon out of your uh, dialect. It's a little harder to do than you might think. Um, but just practice makes perfect. So speaking about science talking about their research, let's get into yours a little bit. You work with squids. So what kind of squids do you work with? We work with Hawaiian bobtail squid. And so these little squid are about the size of a lime or smaller. Um, they live in Hawaii in relatively shallow water. Um, and they're not the type of squid that you might get in calamari. They're not those torpedo-shaped uh, long squid. They're short and squat. Um, they're also called dumpling squid. Some of the species are called dumpling squid. That's so they're kind of, yeah, it's <laughs> really cute. Um, and yeah, they're just small and uh, round sort of. So these squid are really special because they have the symbiosis with a bioluminescent species of bacteria. And that's why you're studying these specific bobtail squid. Yes, exactly. So this symbiosis is really cool because there's only one species of bacteria that live in this organ. So the reason that they have the symbiosis with the bacteria is that the bioluminescence from the bacteria is able to camouflage the squid at night. So these squid are nocturnal. They can detect how much moonlight is coming down from above and then let the appropriate amount of light out of this organ and then oh, wow. match the moonlight. So if it's like a really bright moonlit night, it's a full moon, no clouds, they let a lot of that bacterial light out. And if it's a cloudy night, they actually use their ink sac to cover that light up. And this organ is really, um, really complex and cool because it has the bacteria in a little, uh, in crypts in the middle, and then it has this like silver reflective tissue and a lens so that the squid can manipulate the light coming wow, out. Wow, so it makes it look like the light is just shining off of it and it's just water and it's not that there's a squid there. It's really camouflaging. Exactly. So if a predator were looking up from below, instead of seeing a squid-shaped silhouette, it uh, wouldn't see the silhouette because the squid is matching the just see the sand. Exactly. Well, from above, they would just see like the same color That's of like, right. bluish-gray or whatever. Yeah. And so how many species of squid are there? You, you study this specific one, but are there a lot? Or are there only a few? Um, squid in general, there are about 300 to 350 species of squid. Much more than I would have guessed. Yeah, wow. a ton. And there are about 700 uh, species of cephalopod in general. So that's octopus, cuttlefish, squid, okay. nautilus. Yeah. And so what are the major differences between these species? Yeah, so there are two major types of squid. There are... Um, bobtail squid, and these are the squid that we're studying, which technically uh, some people will tell you aren't actually squid. They're kind of their own um, order. 
And then uh, there are the toothoid squid, and these are the squid that you get in calamari. And the main differences here are just the body plan. So the, the bobtail squid are um, short and squat, and they don't have uh, what's called a pen. So a pen is this uh, clear uh, structure that keeps the um, shape of the squid, that long and skinny shape. And the bobtail squid don't have that. So they're a little bit more kind of like maybe jellyfish-like in terms of not having as much structure to them? They don't have any hard structures other than their beak, um, but their muscles made of the same thing. Um, they still have an ink sac, they still have a beak, they still have tentacles and arms. Um, it's just sort of, they're just shaped differently. And so looking at the symbiosis between this bacteria and the squid, what are you hoping to learn from this that we can maybe apply in the future and kind of build upon this knowledge? Right, so the... Immune cells of squid um, are considered innate immune cells. So in humans, we have our innate immune system and then our adaptive immune system. The adaptive immune system is what uh, prevents you from getting sick again once you've encountered a pathogen. So that's why we can use vaccines, because we get introduced to a pathogen um, and then we learn what the pathogen's about so we know how to attack it the next time. So your now, body sees it and they're like, oh, I've seen this before, I can deal with this exactly, and takes care of exactly. it. Exactly. So, we have both that immune system and an innate immune system. So if we encounter a bacterium or a virus or whatever for the first time, um, we just know that that's not supposed to be there and we attack it. So the squid and human both have the innate immune system. And the uh, proteins on the surface of the immune cell of a squid are pretty similar to the ones that can be present on human cells. So the sequence of the protein may not be exactly the same, but um, the function and the general groups of proteins are pretty similar. So if we can learn how an innate immune cell in a squid can tell the difference between a beneficial bacterium and any other bacterium that it might encounter in the seawater, that can help us figure out how, generally speaking, animals can tell the difference between these two groups. And so you're really looking at immunology and seeing kind of how they work and how we can apply that to you know, maybe future medications or looking at how the human body works. Yeah, so there are a lot of ailments that are associated with having uh, messed up microbiota. So um, bacteria are really important for human health in a number of ways on your skin and particularly in your gut. So your bacteria in the gut, there are a lot of them. They're about the same number of human cells as bacterial cells in your body. And they're very important for digestion and preventing uh, pathogenic bacteria from taking hold in your gut. So um, there are, there are a lot of different problems associated with the wrong bacteria getting in there, um, including obesity, diabetes. Uh, there's been some implications that MS and autism may be associated with altered gut bacteria, um, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, the list goes on and on. So understanding how a healthy animal balances this uh, bacterial load in their body can help us uh, understand how things may go wrong in a human in these uh, pathogenic situations um, so we can learn what we can do to make it help go right. And the microbiome is just so complex. You know, we've studied the human genome and the human genome project was very big for its time and stuff and now it seems to be human microbiome project and, and looking at just how much is in there. And it's not just, oh, good and bad. It's, it's different levels of bacteria and how it's all working together. So it's, it's even more complex that a lot of people think that, oh, we have bacteria in our stomach that helps us. But right. it's really complex. Yeah, so it, we kind of try to stay away from just saying a given bacterium is good or bad because it's really context dependent. A bacterium that's really good for you in one case, when it gets 
sort of overblown and gets taken, uh, can take over, can go from being neutral to bad. So the species isn't bad, the context and where it is and how it's interacting with you can turn from, from a good or neutral situation to a bad one. Which I think that's a concept a lot of people don't understand. I yeah. had someone else on the show that was kind of explaining that to me and that blew my mind at the moment because, you know, I had always kind of thought, oh, there's good bacteria and bad bacteria. Like the yogurt has the good bacteria, bad right. is the one that, you know, causes disease and, and ailments, ailments and stuff. So it's, it's interesting to hear that that's not quite the case and we're right. really narrowing in on what it really is in, in different levels and all of that. Yeah, it's very complex. So getting back to squids a little bit, um, I heard that squid's blood is blue. Why, why is that? Yeah, so squid blood is blue because the oxygen binding protein in squid, hemocyanin, is blue. So our blood is red because the oxygen binding protein, hemoglobin, um, is iron binding and uh, is red. So uh, yeah, just the, uh, the protein that binds oxygen is a different color. So it's, an, it's a normal thing for squids. They have blue blood. That's totally kind of one of their squid, things. Yeah. Um, and so for people that are actually on campus, where is your lab located? We are, uh, our lab where my office is and where we actually do the experiments is in uh, the biology physics building, but the squid live in Tory Life Sciences. Nice. So yeah. you're right on the uh, west and north side of campus here. Yeah. Um, and so how do you actually acquire the squids? You mentioned that they are native to Hawaii. Have you gone there and seen their natural habitat? Yeah, we go about twice a year. Not me specifically. I've been twice in the last five years, but somebody from our lab will go to Hawaii. Um, and these squid are pretty easy to catch. So you just go out at night um, with a little dip net, which is like uh, the width of maybe a basketball. And uh, you walk out into the sand flat. The water may be up between your knee and halfway up your thigh. Um, and the squid are really brightly colored, um, which you wouldn't think being an animal that's supposed to be camouflaged. I was gonna say, yeah. they must be kind of hard to see. Yeah, but in the dark, uh, they don't really, it doesn't matter what color you are as long as the light camouflage is working. So they're these little like technicolor squid and you can see them swimming around and you scoop them up, you put them in a Ziploc bag and then toss them in a bag that I usually have attached to my hip. And then we walk around catching all the squid we can at a given night, and then we ship them back to the University of Connecticut uh, in a Coleman cooler. Um, and they, so it's kind of simple. It's not like there's complex you know, um, equipment that you're using. It's Ziploc bags. and yeah. <laughs> it's pretty low tech. So once you have them here and everything, what is your day like of, you know, you wake up, you probably feed them. How does your day look with them? Yeah, so we, the first thing we do, we go down to the squid room and- uh, The squid make, room, the that sounds so room. cool. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fun. Um, and we just check their salinity uh, to make sure that the, the salt concentration in the water is safe for them, the temperature, all their uh, chemicals in the water. Um, and then we feed them around 2 p.m. because we have them on like a 12 light, 12 dark cycle, um, just like they would have in the wild. Um, and they only come out at night, of course, because they're nocturnal. So we feed them during their nighttime, which happens at 2 p.m. for us. Um, and so what do they eat? What are you giving them? We're giving them live shrimp. So in the summertime, we actually go down to Groton and we catch the shrimp ourselves. I'll bring like a carload full of undergrads and we'll go out and, and go shrimping. That's an awesome field trip. <laughs> yeah, they seem to like it. Uh, and then in the wintertime, we buy live shrimp from Florida and we feed them about three shrimp a day. And so how many squid do you actually have here at UConn? Right now we have 36 because 36? I, yeah, wow. I just raised a bunch of squid um, for this project that I'm doing. Um, but normally we'll have about 20. Wow, that's still a lot. I pictured you having like five or something. Yeah, we have a ton. That's very cool. So do you have like multiple tanks going or is it one big tank? We have two big rack systems, each having 10 tanks. Okay. So they're kind of paired off in little groups and everything. Yep. 
Um, so for those that are interested in maybe going into research or maybe even they're really passionate about squids and they did a Google search and you came up, what advice do you have for those in high school, college, maybe even grad school um, for really pursuing research and, and science communications and all of that? Yeah, so for high school students, I would recommend just get jobs that involve animals if you can, um, but to not worry too much. I mean, I worked as a pizza delivery girl when I was in high school and I turned out okay, uh, but try to read up on what you can in high school and uh, look at colleges that will have opportunities for research. Um, and then once you get to college, even in your freshman year, uh, get involved in a lab as quickly as you can. Um, and in the summertime, instead of going back to your waitressing job or lifeguard job, try to get a, an internship or something related to science. That's really helpful. So after my freshman year, I uh, worked with bats, actually. I, uh, before you put up a wind farm, you have to make sure there's no endangered bats in the area. So I was out at night um, setting up nets and catching different kinds of bats and then figuring out if they were pregnant and, and then chasing them around the countryside uh, oh, in wow. my car. So that was a, a weird and cool job. Yeah, you must have, so you were looking at like populations of bats and how much there were in that area. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, so that was cool. And that job paid perfectly well. So if you d like can't afford one of these unpaid internships, um, there are jobs that exist. Um, so just keep at it. Um, and then I worked at the Marine Biological Lab after my sophomore year of college and after my junior year. Um, and that's when I started working with uh, cephalopods. So I started working with uh, cuttlefish there then. Is that um, in Connecticut? That's in, uh, in Woods Hole in Massachusetts. Okay. But there are a lot of marine labs that have great internship programs. I know the Moat Marine Lab, one of our undergrads, worked for them one summer, and he loved that. Um, they maybe Mystic sharks. Aquarium in Connecticut but, yeah, may have they, opportunities as well. They definitely do. The New England Aquarium for sure does, and so does uh, Mystic. They have an REU program uh, in Mystic. Um, so that's a, a paid internship for undergrads um, where you get research experience too. Um, yeah, and just uh, don't be afraid to contact scientists. Um, there's a lot on Twitter. <laughs> there's a ton on Twitter. Yeah, and uh, the earlier you can get involved in research, the better. Are there any resources that you find that you found really helpful, you know, during college and during your PhD to help you kind of learn different things and learn from older scientists? Um, I think mostly the science that I learned hands-on was in the lab that I was volunteering for during the school year. Um, but there are job boards that were useful. I know the Society for Conservation Biology has a big job board involving animals. Texas A&M does as well. Um, if you just Google Texas A&M job board, they'll, uh, there's a lot of animal jobs there. Um, but Twitter's been really blossoming as this place for scientists to communicate with each other and communicate with the public. So if you follow scientists that are doing work that you think is cool, um, you really get a view into their lives in the lab and what they're up to. And Especially if they're tweeting throughout the day, oh, I just did this experiment, I'm on a break during this one. Yeah, exactly. That happens a lot. Um, and there's a lot to learn about the lifestyle of being a scientist and, and what they're doing. And you can really get a sense for whether that's something that you might want to do um, without having to get actively involved. You should get actively involved, but if you can't for whatever reason, it's a decent process. It's a good way to at least introduce yourself to things yeah. and kind of get familiar with it. So why did you choose to work with Squid? What brought you to kind of figure out this passion of yours? When I was really young, I would always go to the library with my mom, and uh, one day we uh, rented this video. It was like a National Geographic kids tape, um, and I watched it over and over and over again. There was this one scene where like Twilight Zone music starts playing, and then they introduce the cuttlefish, and I had never seen a cuttlefish before, and it just like 
blew my mind. Um, and they were doing this, this pattern called passing cloud. So the cuttlefish can change its color instantaneously. It has color changing cells on its back called chromatophores all over its skin. And uh, it was doing this sort of hypnotic black and white pattern that would move across its body to um, hypnotize prey or confuse prey right wow. before they strike. So this is a little bit more compared to the bobtail squids that you work with. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit more maybe high definition, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah, that's actually a pretty decent way of explaining okay. it. Yeah. <laughs> so our squid have pretty big chromatophores, so it would be like, I don't know. Very low def, like an old TV kind right. of thing. Yeah, maybe a Game Boy from the 90s. Right. And then these squid are like your, I don't know, 1080p. Like 3D TV that's right. the curved sure. kind yeah, and exactly. everything. It's really cool. So um, I saw those those cephalopods in that tape, and I, pretty much from then on I was like, all right, this is it. Like, so from a very young age, you were like, seen. this is my goal. I want to figure out a way to work with yeah. animals like these. Exactly, yeah. So ever since then, I was just trying to figure out how to get into marine biology and how to find a lab that worked on them. Um, and yeah, eventually ended up here. And so Yukon, what brought you here specifically? Um, I'm working for my, my PI, so the professor I work under, uh, Spencer Nyholm. Um, I was working in Germany and I knew I wanted to work with um, the immune system of squid. I took an immunology course in college and thought it was super cool, so I figured if I could bring cephalopods and immunology together for my PhD, that would be perfect. Um, as you might imagine, there aren't a ton of cephalopod immunologists, but Spencer is one of them. So uh, I just applied to one grad school here and I figured if I didn't get in, I would just try again the next year. Uh, until it was your top and me. only choice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, well, anything else of fun facts that you would want us to know about squids? If someone's coming away from the show, what do you want the general public to know? Other than that they're adorable, because I'll just right. say that right now. I've right, seen well, pictures. Say, I'll say one thing, and that's bobtail squid are not cuttlefish, because on Twitter people are always trying to tell me that my I saw that. Right. is not my They're trying organism. to explain what you do to you. Yeah, yeah. that happens uh, to me kind of often, but what are you going to do? Uh, but the other thing, I'll tell you a story about cuttlefish. Um, cuttlefish are actually my favorite cephalopod, to be honest. But uh, but we won't tell your squid that. We won't tell my squid that. <laughs> I just would feel bad uh doing experiments on cuttlefish, so I picked the bobtail squid. All right, that works. Uh, but anyway, so there are these cuttlefish in Australia. They're called the giant Australian cuttlefish, and they're huge. They're like three feet long in the mantle, wow. so even longer than that total. Um, and out during mating season, they all aggregate together on the reef. And there are about 10 male cuttlefish for every one female cuttlefish. So the competition to mate with these females is really fierce. And the big males will wrestle with each other, um, and the winner of the wrestling match gets to mate with the female. Now, if you're a small male cuttlefish, you know you don't really stand a chance against these big guys. So they've devised a really cool uh, adaptation to figure out how to get with these females. So um, the male cuttlefish will put on this purple and black and blue pattern on their back, and they have big, uh, an extra set of arms on the side that are um, kind of billowy and long, um, and on either side of their face, if you will. So the little males will pull up those two arms and kind of tuck them underneath and pretend they don't have them, and then put on the pattern that the female has. The females have these... Really? Uh, yeah, they have this like maroon and white splotchy pattern. So, so since they can change their color whenever they want, um, they effectively cross-dress. So they put the, the lady pattern on, they hide their other arms, and then they just sort of swim down to the female. The male thinks, score, I now have two females. I'm doing great out here. And once the male, big male turns his back, the little cross-dressing male changes his color, mates with the female, and then gets the heck out of there. The psychology behind that is just blowing my mind. Like, that's right. crazy. They're super smart, really clever. Apparently, yeah. yeah. 
And so during mating season, the female cuttlefish will mate with a number of males and then store the sperm from each male in these little pockets in the side of her arm. And then when she goes to lay eggs, she can choose which male that she mated with to actually fertilize her eggs with. Wow. Yeah. So what we found, and by we, I mean uh, the researchers at the MBL, not me specifically. You're part uh, of the, the large-scale group. For yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> the, the royal we of cephalopod biology. Exactly, yeah. Uh, they found that uh, the little sneaky males, the cross-dressing males, actually ended up being chosen to fertilize eggs more than the big beefy males. So the females are actually rewarding intelligence or sneakiness by giving them more offspring. So it's it's uh, it's brains instead of brawn in this case. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. Yeah. Wow. Well, there's so much to learn about squid. You know, we've we've covered some stuff, but there's definitely more to learn. And so people can go to skypeascientist.com to actually connect with scientists in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Now, just occurred to me, is there a way that um, people that aren't in a classroom can benefit from your program or is that kind of, you know, down the road? Yeah, so this semester we've started uh, expanding to groups of adults. So if you get eight adults um, in a room at a time or even if you're um, in high school and your teacher doesn't want to do it but you have an after school group or whatever, um, as long as we have eight people in a room, you can sign up and um, pick a day and wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So senior centers, libraries, all kinds of different groups. Totally, yeah. That's awesome. Well, that about wraps up today's episode of DNA Today. Thank you so much, Sarah, just for coming on and sharing your love for squids. Yeah, and no really just sharing also science communication aspects of things and how we can, as scientists and as people in the science community, can kind of get the public engaged and involved and excited. People can go to, um, or on Twitter, at Sarah Mac Attack. Um, to see all kinds of squid, and you're very active on Twitter, so she's yeah. a really good scientist to follow. Highly recommend. Um, if you want to check out more about the show, you can go to dnapodcast.com. I'm on Twitter, at DNA Podcast, on Instagram, at DNA Radio. And any questions for the two of us can be sent to info at dnapodcast.com. So thanks for listening, and join me next week to learn discover new advances in the world of genetics. The genes of you and me, the genes of you and me, we're all made of DNA, we're all made of the same chemical DNA.